Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. On Twitter. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since we discovered Spotify for Podcasters, we feel like having options like video podcasts and Q&A lets us be more creative on another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome to On the Verge. This is Zach Spedden joined by Nick Stevens and Chris Stoner, the owner of Baltimore Sports and Life, who is joining us this week to fill in for Bob Phelan. Uh, Bob, as you know, is on the 10-day IL. Uh, we're optimistic that he will be rejoining us on schedule, but we'll have more updates between now and next week. On tonight's episode, we're going to recap the 2021 Orioles season, such as it was, and talk a little bit more about the young players that stood out to us and the jobs that they did this year. We're also going to recap the season that the Norfolk Tides had, get into the players that we think could be part of this club in the immediate future, what stood out to us, what was good and bad. Um, so we'll get into that in a little bit. But first, On the Verge is brought to you courtesy of Mercer Foreign Home Carpet One. Mercer is a third-generation family business that was established in 1959 and is located on Main Street in beautiful, historic downtown Westminster, Maryland. For all of your flooring needs, think Mercer. Beginning of each show, uh, each week, we like to shout out our new patrons who have joined our Patreon community. And uh, Nick, who do we have new this week? Yeah, we had two new people join, so welcome. Uh, and apologies for name pronunciations here again. Uh, so Marinellis Escara, I believe, uh, has joined. And David Sarral, uh, I'm assuming I pronounced that right. I'm sorry if I butchered those names. Uh, welcome, and thank you all for joining. Thank you for your support. And uh, our guest host tonight is the owner of Baltimore Sports and Life. He is also a co-host of The Warehouse, where he talks Orioles with Matt Corey and Stephen Loftus. Uh, he's also the host of Sports Tonight, which is part of USL Radio. Uh, he is Chris Stoner. Chris, thank you for joining us tonight. Glad to join. And uh, sorry, listeners, uh, uh, replacing Bob, not going to do as uh, good a job there, but glad to be on. Uh, Zach, Nick, and Bob have done a great job all year, and uh, pleasure to join tonight. Well, we're glad to have you on. So we'll start off with the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, who finished the season in line to have the number one pick in the 2021 draft or 2022 draft, unless anything changes with the collective bargaining agreement. Um, You know, if you're a regular listener to On the Verge, we kind of stopped talking about the major league team regularly uh, somewhere like around Memorial Day, maybe a little sooner. Um, But, you know, it's uh, it is what it is. And uh, so I'll start with Chris here. What did you, I know that this season was a struggle in a lot of ways, but what were some sort of some of the highlights and the lowlights for you? 
Uh, the highlight was Cedric Mullins, uh, that he established himself. I mean, the, the year he had was unreal. I mean, we went into the year not expecting him. I did not expect him to last all year as the center fielder. Uh, and then I got thinking, well, if he could be a 750 OPS guy with a plus glove, that has plenty of value. Maybe he's a multi-win player. But he sustained it all year, and he wound up having a year that was, uh, you know, where he's going to deservedly get MVP votes, not just the most valuable Oriole votes. So that was the highlight of the year that he established himself there. Uh, I am a huge Austin Hayes fan. Um, I, you know, he had the two IL stints, uh, struggled over a portion of the year, but finished strong. Uh, there's still questions about whether he's a long-term piece or not, but I remain optimistic there. He at least will go into 22 as a uh, de facto starter on one of the corners. And then obviously Ryan Mountcastle, um, April was a struggle. And then end of the year, this last month, the last few weeks, uh, you know, a little bit of a struggle overall. But for the year, you got to be really uh, enthusiastic about what he provided there. And he's going to be a low-cost option at first or DH for some time, and that has plenty of value. Yeah, I think uh, all those are good, and I think we're going to kind of expand on a lot of those guys a little bit more here as we talk about the Major League wrap-up. But just overall, um, I didn't watch a whole lot of the Major League product, uh, to be completely honest. I think the John Means no-hitter was like the last game that I watched from first pitch to last pitch. Uh, so that's that was before, right before the minor league season started. Uh, but yeah, seeing Ryan Mountcastle succeed, that was a guy we talked a lot about uh, last year when we started this show without minor league baseball. Mountcastle was a big focus. Um, it was cool to see him settle in and finish the year really strong, too, at the end of the year there. Um, and then show improvements all year. Uh, John Means, I think John Means proved that, I think all Orioles fans kind of knew this going into the year, but in my opinion, he proved that he's a, a quality major league starter for years to come. Uh middle or back into this rotation we'll see how things shake out but john means had another pretty solid year and like chris said cedric mullins i remember very vividly that cedric mullins that was back in booing in 2019 and i never imagined i thought he was done i thought the career was over there to be totally honest uh and to see him now get being the conversation for conversation for al mvp is just phenomenal so a lot of bright spots even though this was a terrible year overall at the major league level there are some bright spots and hopefully uh the future is a little bit brighter in birdland I feel like there's a bit of a foundation coming together with Mullins and Mountcastle. You could throw Means in there as well, because I do think that the Orioles are going to hold on to him for a while. I guess going into the offseason, the big question marks as far as trade options go were Anthony Santander and Trey Mancini, whether or not the Orioles hold on to those guys for next year, and in the case of Mancini, perhaps pursue an extension, or they trade them. And another name, and this is something we discussed last week on here, is DJ Stewart, who struggled again this year. There are seemingly now options behind him to take over that reserve outfield role. The name that I would most be intrigued by at this point is Robert Newstrom. Uh, but I'll throw this out there. To start off with uh, Santander and Mancini, what do you think the offseason holds for them with the Orioles? Uh, for, for me, I'm fully expecting Mancini to get an extension. You know, I think he would have been traded at the deadline had they were – uh, really looking to trade him. His value isn't going to be more than it was at the deadline. And I think there were multiple options available to move him at that point. Uh, if they move him here in the offseason, it's not the end of the world to me. I mean, Mancini, obviously, it's a great story. 
He's a good player, not a great player, but I think they can find a deal that works for both sides, and I think he can be uh, a piece of the roster going forward. Santander, um, look, I mean, his, his strengths and his weaknesses are pretty clear. He's got real power. Last year, he was a gold glove finalist, whatever that means. Basically, he's an adequate corner outfielder, uh, and he's got real on-base issues. Um, But if you're trading him now, you're doing so with his value at a low. Myself, I would just prefer – the arbitration isn't going to be that much based off the revenue the Orioles have available to them. I'd like to have him come back for the first few months next year. He's either improved or he isn't. If he's not, then you can move on to AAA options. We'll discuss uh, you know later in the later in the show. Yeah, I agree with Santander. I think you're looking at five years now of data on the guy, and he's barely a league average player. I mean, it's, it's a fun story, and he's had some moments. Uh, but you know, we've kind of seen what kind of player he is, and I don't think it's 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 not an everyday starter. I think he's a really good, could be a really good fourth outfielder on a major league roster. Maybe you give him more strategic at bats and favorable matchups. Uh, you give him a less opportunity to get hurt out there, not playing every single day. You know, he does have good power from the left side. We know that's going to play well at Camden Yards and Fenway and Yankee Stadium. I mean, there's a role for him, I think, at the major league level. But I mean, I think he is who he is—a 250 hitter with pop who will struggle to crack 300 on base percentage, and that's kind of it. You're not going to get anything for him. With Trey Mancini, and this conversation, you know, everybody's had this conversation. The articles have been out there. They're going to keep going. I don't think the Orioles have to make a decision this offseason, right? He still has another year on his contract. So, um, you know, they could probably wait to make a decision on this. But I hope just some decision is made this offseason, whether it's a trade or an extension. Uh, to me, when I think about this, though, the Orioles aren't in a position where they just have to dump guys for minor league depth anymore. Like, they can hold off for that top dollar value. Um but with Mancini, if you think about a trade return, like what kind of haul do you think he's really going to get? Like, is it a, a Jemai Jones caliber hitting prospect or like a Garrett Stallings level pitching prospect as like the headliner? And if that's the case, then Trey Mancini is going to do provide a lot more value to the Orioles, keeping him, extending him, than bringing in with some of those guys. We don't need more Garrett Stallings type pitching prospects. We don't need more Jemai Jones type you know, caliber prospects. We have plenty of those, plenty of depth in the minor leagues. Uh, so I think you keep Trey Mancini, even taking the emotional side of this, the emotional aspect of this out of the equation. I, I think you extend Trey Mancini this offseason. I've, I'm. It would, it would be frustrating yeah. for me with the idea of trading him, not not so much the idea that of him being traded, but the idea of we didn't trade him at this non waiver deadline, and now yeah. we're going to trade him this winter or potentially next waiver deadline, where the, the value can't be more. The one thing I will say, if you did move Mancini and back to Santander, even if he is only just a league average-ish uh, player, potentially he has value, as Nick said, as uh, you know, maybe he's kind of the four-fish outfielder. He can rotate on the corners, and then he's also a DH option uh, 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 there. But really, I, I think his the writing's pretty much on the wall for him, but I would just assume bring him back 200 bats that basically takes you through uh, the end of May – He's either producing at a higher level or he's not. They talked a lot about his uh, uh, ankle injury that he dealt with most of this year. And if he's not producing at a higher level, then you have internal options you can uh, you can move on with. Yeah, yeah. If you want to compare Santander now to Kyle Stowers, which is really hard to do because Stowers obviously has no major league time, whereas Santander has been up for a few years. Stowers, to me, no question has better 
natural power than Santander does. And I think when he's on, probably plays an outfield that's maybe slightly worse, a tick worse than Santander at his best. But still, he's not going to hurt you out there, especially the short right field. However, because we know that Stowers does have some of something of a strikeout tendency, I think that there is a reason to hold him back at AAA next year that has nothing to do with service time. So maybe the idea is you bring Santander back. That gives Stowers the opportunity to continue to develop at Portfolio. If Santander, through Memorial Day, through the end of June, going into the All-Star break, is healthy and can at least be a complementary piece to a contender, that's when you look to flip him. Because that's probably, you know, you're probably not going to hold out a lot more to get good value for him. And then you have that internal option that you can go to to step in the right field. I like that. And I just I just keep thinking about DJ Stewart in this as well. Like <laughs> dump him for whatever and bring up Robert Newstrom if we're talking outfield options. Uh Robert Newstrom could definitely give you more production than DJ Stewart can. I would bet money on that. Uh but yeah, I do like that Kyle Stowers. Start him in AAA again next year and let Santander go and, and let's see what he's got. I mean, I'm fine with giving him a few more months. We'll see. I I would hope that I know we can, I can't really speak on like potential free agents. I haven't looked at the list. I know Chris just wrote a piece and put a lot of potential options down there on, on Baltimore sports and life.com. Uh, but you know, I would hope a lot of that money that the Orioles do hopefully spend this offseason goes towards the pitching and, and maybe some help. We've talked about defensive help on the infield. Uh, so outfield, there's a situation there where you, know, you can let Santa there come back and play for a few more months at least. Yeah, I would agree with that. And Nick, since you mentioned, I do want to, uh, have Chris, uh, Give the listeners a little bit of insight into the piece that he had over at Baltimore Sports and Life over the weekend, kind of uh, recapping this season a little bit, but then also getting into how he thinks the Orioles could approach this offseason. Uh, I just started the article and I, I prefaced the article and I preface this. I'm a huge Michael Elias fan. I think he's the best thing that's happened to the Orioles in multiple decades. Uh, but I also feel... We've now reached, I think yesterday was the last day of the Michael Elias era where, for me, wins and losses don't matter. Uh, at, at, at this point, it's time to improve as a franchise. And the reason I say that is really three things have been accomplished. Three main things have been accomplished in the Elias era. You have pared the payroll down, <laughs> which gives you a lot of flexibility in terms of either uh, absorbing existing contracts or doing something else. You have a core of players. We've talked about some of them uh, that I think are existing on the roster or and then certainly the next wave of guys that are are directly on the come. So it's not about believing that you're going to do anything this winter that's going to take you towards contention. We understand where the Orioles are starting from at this point. But I think the 23 Orioles can potentially contend. uh, uh, And I think to get to that, most of that's going to come from what you do internally, but I think it's time to augment what uh, that existing core. Uh, Nick said in the you know, previous question there, hopefully if we see any investment into the roster, it's with a couple of arms. You know, uh, I did list a number of different scenarios that are available. We've talked about it on the warehouse multiple times on that pod. Uh, there's a lot of guys available, and we're not just talking about the top end of the market that are available that can directly – significantly improve this roster. And I'm not talking uh, just, um, you know, if you wanted to talk about the, the the larger acquisitions, you can make a case, but I'm talking about guys on shorter term deals that uh, should be readily available to the Orioles to improve the current major league product. And I, I, I think it's time. 
Yeah, you know, I think there are some short-term targets that the Orioles could look at. And I think for me, what it comes back to is how do you want to manage the next two or three years where you're waiting for a top prospect to emerge? And one of the players that Stephen Loftus mentioned on The Warehouse, and Chris, you mentioned in your article, is a guy like Brian Anderson. Brian Anderson, to me, is an adequate stopgap to get you to a Gunnar Henderson if you think he's a couple years away still, uh, to a Jordan Westberg, or, you know, even if we're looking further down the line, Kobe Mayo. Just whatever that option is at third base, Brian Anderson's a good option to be that stopgap. Obviously, the shoulder concerns are present, but, you know, hopefully when working on the trade, you see something in the medicals. Um, so I think that's kind of where the Orioles should look this offseason is how do you make that bridge to some of their younger players a little bit better? Because this revolving door that we saw at third base next year is not going to help a young pitching staff develop at all. Uh, same goes for second base, really. And, you know, you also have to see improvement from your young pitchers. Uh, you got to see Ballman, hopefully Lothar and Wells, uh, Kyle Bradis, who we're going to talk about in a little bit when they get that opportunity next year to really take advantage of it. Yeah. Um, I was going to throw a name out there because there's one team out there that is completely falling apart. Uh, they may or may not have fired their manager already. And uh, everything seems to be just a, a complete chaos out there on the West coast in San Diego. So, um, I mean, we're trading Kyle Stowers and Kobe Mayo for Manny Machado, right? That's like <laughs> the the big winner acquisition. Well, just throwing that out there. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I, yeah. I, uh, you know, I go back to the arms. Um, well, you know, what I really go back to is where do the Orioles want to take their payroll? And I don't have an answer to that. I, I, I My guess is probably not much uh, much higher than where they are. You guys recently had on John Mioli, uh, and he had done an, an estimate uh, for, you know, he went for the arbitration projected raises, and he projected the opening day payroll next year at $54 million. Well, Fifty-four million. Uh, if you look back at what the Orioles were spending in sixteen and seventeen, and you project, uh, you know, inflation-wise, basically the Orioles were spending roughly about one hundred and eighty-three million. So, I'm not saying go from fifty-four to one hundred and eighty-three million, but whatever the payroll is, whether it's fifty-four million, seventy-five million, one hundred and forty million, there are multiple options available to you. And you've had accumulating depth in your system, as you guys certainly have pointed out uh, uh, through the uh, all your work on the Verge and uh, with your prospect list and your different articles. Otherwise, I mean, there's a lot of increasing depth. There are multiple ways to go. Identify some pieces uh, that you can tangibly go out and add and, and augment the existing roster with, and it's you know shows some improvement. Uh, but going back to the other arms, you know, it's the arms that are already here. And we're going to talk about more of them, but you know, I keep calling them kind of like the group of 10. There's like those 10 guys that are basically not Rodriguez and Hall. They're basically everybody else that's right on the uh, on the verge or periphery that it's, uh, you know, you might only think Bauman has kind of mid-rotation upside, but there's a lot of guys that could projectively help a roster in some form or fashion a number of them got uh major league time this year it didn't go so great overall but the Orioles have to get some level of production out of that group you know on their roster uh you know curious on your thoughts and we can get into that on some of those arms and where they are going forward <laughs> yeah I think 
so for me, like when I'm looking at the rotation, I mean, you lock John Means up. I think you give him a deal, you extend him. He's around for the next couple of years, right? Uh, there's no doubt in my mind, like I said before, that he's a major league starter. Um, you bring yeah, in. I think he's under control through uh, 24, right? Yeah, at so, least. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you've got him around, right? That's that's one piece, and and I know. Uh, I think the biggest disappointment this year was the fact that Dean Kramer looked. He looks terrible down in AAA. He had a few spotty good starts at the end of the year with Norfolk, but. Uh, it was rough for him. It was rough for Keegan Aiken. Um, it was rough for Zach Lowther. I know there's injuries we've talked about before that we felt like the kind of the handling of Zach Lowther and maybe Alex Wells a little bit, Isaac Madsen, arms like that, probably could have been done better. Uh, but, you know, that's a whole separate discussion. But um, I think, you know, fingers crossed, you look at Grayson Rodriguez and John Means, that's two pieces. And then I'm looking at like Michael Bauman, Kyle Bradish, Keegan Aiken, Zach Lowther, Dean Kramer, Alex Wells. Can you get one out of that group as a viable starter? That's three-fifths of a major league rotation. And then you still have guys like D.L. Hall in the system, Drew Rahm, Carter Baumler, who I know a lot of experts like outside of the organization are very high on Carter Baumler. I know he's recovering from Tommy John. He's many years away. But uh, I'll throw in Gene Pinto as well. Uh, Bob's listening and watching live. I know we can't go on talking about pitching prospects without mentioning Gene Pinto, so that one's for Bob. Uh, but I, I do think Gene Pinto obviously has a ton of potential can you find one more out of that group? Uh, maybe, hopefully. But even then, you spend the uh, you go after your stud free agent pitcher in the next year or so, and you have so much hitting talent, so much depth you've acquired in the minor league system. You can trade for another established veteran. There's your five man rotation. But it's just there's ten guys right there. Can you get just one viable starter at least? And if we can't, we, we have bigger issues, and we're we're a whole separate podcast now. But I mean. You've got it. You're going to get one out of that group, at least. Once the Royals have gained the additional year of control, you know, if the CBA is not addressed, uh, if there's not a change in the service time uh, rules over the winter, once the Royals have gained the additional year of control and Rouchman and Rodriguez are up, let's say to start of June, really end of May, somewhere in there. At that point, you've got your starting catcher. And basically you've got, Everywhere outside of short and third at that point, you have pretty you have a viable lineup, right? And Rodriguez, uh, as you said, he teams of means. My thought is, you know, for next year, you look at Rochman. Can you be a league average catcher? Rodriguez, can you be a league average four for fifth starter? I would hope that's realistic for them as they get their, uh, you know, get their feet feet wet. Uh, but the other guys, uh, you, you know, that that entire group. I, I'm. Uh, we talked. We started the show talking about Cedric, right? And, and Nick, you mentioned in 19, and you talk about Cedric going from the major league roster and dropping all the way down the buoy and looking completely lost. So I'm not writing these guys off completely because they came up and this year they struggled. And uh, understanding certainly what they went through in 20 as well, and not that certainly not helping their development issues. Uh, but I'm also not completely comfortable with the idea of going into 22 and saying here are multiple spots waiting for you in the rotation. For me, it would be, let's go to spring training and see where we are. And if several of you have to go back and earn your way back up, Kremer outside of Bowman might be the guy in that group that I still have some excitement for, even though this year was a complete wash. You look at his K's, look at the hit per, hits per inning. There's still something there. It's just can he ever have the fastball co- <laughs> command, uh, you know, to really play off with some of the secondary stuff. But 
it's a group there, like whether or not they, they ever establish themselves as major league starters, they've all done something, you know, six of them, the, the ones that came up this year, they had all done something through the double-A level as starters. Get something out of them, uh, you know, whether that's your your bullpen or otherwise. Uh, you know, I can't help but think about Tampa and how, how they – uh, develop their pitching and, and utilize their staffs and feel like they would be getting more out of uh, that, that group collectively. Yeah. And just another point too, I'll throw in there is that people talking about like Michael Bauman and his experience, he had the major league level this year. Uh, and I saw some comments of people like, I'm not really that excited about Michael Bauman or like he looked, he didn't really look that great. The, the, Gap between AAA and the major leagues, I've seen a lot of people who are way smarter than I will ever be when it comes to baseball. A lot of people have made that comment this year that that gap between AAA and the major leagues is as big as it's ever been, and it's growing even wider. And so, like like Chris mentioned, what 2020 did to a lot of these guys, especially Bauman and Bradish and, and Lowther and stuff, they didn't get that opportunity to pitch regularly. Uh, and so I'm going, you're going to have a full offseason. Ideally, a lot of this outside of baseball stuff is largely behind us, and hopefully you, you these guys can have full, healthy off-seasons. They're all going to be healthy this off-season, enter the off-season healthy at least. So you got a full, healthy off-season to go into spring training, and I think then we can really start to get better evaluations of a lot of these guys. Yeah, I agree. I think that there were a lot of odd factors going on between AAA and the majors. You know, you have a guy like Alexander Wells who had to spend all of the pandemic leading up to the spring in his native Australia. So, you know, you have to figure that that affected his development a little bit. Um, so just examples like that, you had these taxi squad situations where pitchers would be brought up for, you know, three or four days at a time, uh, and not in AAA getting reps, which I don't think helped. So there's a lot of things that I think when we get into 2022 and hopefully things are more normal, that we can start to see more of a natural progression between AAA and the majors. Um, Even even the guys that went to the extended camp last year and they were facing the inter-squad competition, that's not the same (laughs) developmentally. And, uh, you know, that was something that was missed. If you were excited about those arms in 20, you you shouldn't be uh, completely dismissing them now, whether or not you believe they're going to be projectable major league starters or not. There's still something uh, there that you can get something out of them. Uh, the rest of the article we pointed out, you know, a couple of number of names. Uh, Nick could just, you know, if we stay on the major league portion for one second, I would just love to add two viable major league starters. Uh, I would just think that would just add uh, a world of difference. You know, two names that I'm most excited about right now are uh, Alex Wood and uh, Rod. Rodriguez of uh, Boston. It looks like the Red Sox would like to move on, on from there. We're not talking about top of the upside arms. We're talking mid rotation arms that should be viably obtainable for the Orioles. And if you just team those two with means, and maybe Rodriguez comes up uh, in the May, June, then all of a sudden it looks like you have the makings of a true major league staff. And, uh, you know, that would be, that would go a long way towards uh, uh, actually having a more viable product. <laughs> yeah. No doubt. And I mean, I was listening to a Braves podcast earlier. I have podcasts from like all teams in my rotation, boring nine to five office life. So I like to see what other fans from other teams are talking about, get the vibes there. And this Braves podcast I was listening to was talking about the Orioles uh, and, and their series and how this team, as bad as they are, like they score runs and there is a good core there. So people outside of Baltimore recognize this small core at the major league level. 
And I do like that if you have, I think what Michael Elias, when he made that comment about Rushman and Rodriguez possibly starting next year on the opening day roster and Rodriguez, it not necessarily being a prereq that he has to pitch in AAA. I, I think he's, he's not going to say that if he honestly didn't mean it. Uh, and so based on everything else with promotions and everything. So I could see a situation where Rodriguez does start the year on the opening day roster with John Means. We haven't even mentioned Bruce Zimmerman's name. I don't know how you guys feel about Bruce Zimmerman, but I feel like he can come back next year and deserves a rotation spot, give it an opportunity. You got three guys right there. You sign two viable guys that can go out every five days, not Matt Harvey's, every five days and pitch well. And I think you do have a, a good team. I mean, it's not a playoff team, but you have a much higher quality product at the major league level. And you have a ton of pitchers you can use out of this bullpen, Bauman, Bradish, Lauther. You can use all those guys out of the pen. You can use a six-man rotation, whatever you got to do. But at the end of the day, it's a much better roster in 2022. And that's all we can hope for at this point. Yeah, completely agree. And as for Zimmerman, I'll just say that, and I know this you know, takes us a grain of salt, the rotation in 2021 was better with Bruce Zimmerman in it than it was without Bruce Zimmerman. Um, and I still wonder what he could have contributed without the injuries that he dealt with this year. I feel like if nothing else, he could have been that guy that most of the time kept you in games and kept it close enough for that offense to come back if there was an early deficit, which a lot of the Orioles starters this year couldn't do. Zimmerman, as I say, I'm not sold on him as a starter, but I'm sold on him as a guy that can help a roster, you know, to be repetitive there. Uh, And uh, of all the arms that we saw this year working their way through, he was kind of – Early on, he was the most consistently competitive, uh, to your point, uh, of keeping the Orioles, you know, in, in games, which is all you're really asking for out of that fifth. But, you know, ultimately, I'm not sure if he can stay in that role, but he could certainly be uh, a guy that could help you two to three innings at a time and probably provide more innings than the typical reliever. And I think that would help a roster. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll move on now. We'll recap the Norfolk Tide season. Overall, when you count the regular season and the final stretch, the Tides go 52-78, and 78, which amounts to a 400 winning percentage. There were some downs this year. Uh, a few guys that we expected to have big years didn't quite produce at Norfolk. We also saw some players like Jemiah Jones slump along the way after getting off to a hot start. Yusniel Diaz struggled with injuries and was generally not consistent when he was healthy. Ryland Bannon was kind of in a similar boat. But there were some highlights. Uh, Adley Rutzman obviously going there late in the year, making an impact. Kyle Stowers looked really good there late in the year. Um, so there was a few others in there. Kyle Bradis, after kind of hitting a rough patch over the summer, picked things up and had a great September. Um, so, Nick, I'll just start with you. An up-and-down year for the Tides in a lot of respects, but some positives, I think. Yeah, I think I was – thinking about the Norfolk Tide season, going and preparing for this episode. And it was a tough season from the jump when Jemai Jones and Yusno Diaz both went down with injuries very early in the year. But going into the season, this roster had like eight top 30 prospects and a ninth in Michael Bauman that we thought would probably be there a lot earlier than what than when he eventually showed up due to the injury and the longer rehab process he took. But I really thought this was going to be a big year for the Norfolk Tides. But unfortunately, in another tough season that saw today, uh, Gary Kendall, their manager and their pitching coach, Kenny Steenshire, were both let go uh, from Norfolk. So um, I'm not too surprised by either of those uh, based on some of the, we'll say, progression or lack of progression with some players. Uh, but um, with this Norfolk roster, like, I don't know. 
Adley Rushman was the definite bright spot. Kyle Stowers hit well in his limited time in AAA. Uh, yeah, the strikeouts were still high, but he continued to walk. And instead of like he traded in a lot of that home run power, you know, he led the organization with 27 home runs. He traded in a lot of that home run power for more singles and doubles. So I thought that was really good to see. Uh, I think Robert Newstrom put himself in a position to compete in spring training. Um, Ryland Bannon had his peaks and valleys, but that uh, oblique injury you know, that can hurt you for the full year at least have an impact all season long so i have no issues in giving Ryland bannon another season in 2022 to see what he can do uh but as far as the pitching stuff kyle bradish was the stud and i will talk more about him uh but ofelke peralta was another thing that also impressed me in his time in triple a uh, i know we'll probably dive deeper into him on our rule five episode but he showed me that i think there's even more there to unlock when it comes to peralta um and so in at the major league level, I think he can be a real weapon in two innings sense, uh, but we'll see. And I also can't, we can't, so I throw his name out there before we bypass him and, and I forget about him, but shout out to the big man, literally the big man, Felix Batista. Uh, he pitched at three levels this year, ended at AAA, a 2.45 ERA with the tides, five saves, 33% strikeout rate. He dropped the walk rate. I know it was 12%, which I know is still really bad, uh, but that was a significant drop from his high-end AA walk rate. Uh, and he only walked two over his final seven innings. So give the big man a big league opportunity, Michael Elias. We got to see that guy in the major leagues. But some positives, some negatives, but overall a, a decent season from some of the top prospects at least. Uh, I guess I was most encouraged. Um, well, and next set of players are mostly encouraged about. Obviously, we'd start with Stowers, frankly. But uh, I, I guess where I really wanted to start was what I was not encouraged about was the uh, acquisitions from the Machado trade with uh, uh, Diaz and uh, Kramer, aforementioned. And, you know, the, their struggles this year, that was a downer for me. I thought Diaz going into the year, I thought uh, there were – were good reports for him out of the extended uh, camp last year and then some in spring training. I thought he had a chance to make the roster at some point this year. It was a disaster for him this year in, in all sense. And for me, he's at now at the point where you just forget about him until he does something to make you, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, back on your radar. Uh, there's a lot of discussion today on the board, BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com, about, you know, would you uh, keep him on the 40 or not? I think there's enough deadwood on the 40 you can knock off that I would still uh, keep him there, but he's not an automatic uh, uh, keep at this point. And Kramer, we discussed, I, you know, I still have some optimism. Maybe he winds up uh, as, as a reliever himself, but uh, certainly disappointing there. Uh, you know, we talk about a couple guys individually, but, um, you know, obviously Stowers and Newstrom, that was encouraging. Those were good to see. I'll also give a mention for um, – uh, set lock, you know, getting up, uh, you know, his kind of second half there. Uh, Bowie was good. Triple A was uh, okay. Uh, but, you know, it was a big year for him just kind of staying healthy on a mound and showing some level of progression. Uh, if you turn him into a reliever at this point, I think maybe you actually have <laughs> have something. Uh, you know, I, I, we mentioned all the names in front of him in terms of his starter. I don't think he has any really starting potential for this organization. I'd like to see them uh, make him a full-time reliever starting next uh, spring. Uh, the other name, you know, you guys certainly mentioned that you've been on it all year. You know, Bradish, really excited to see what what they directly have there. Uh, what are your guys' thoughts on uh, Kevin Smith? That was kind of a uh, – wasn't 
real excited uh, about the uh, the end results there. <laughs> Nick has a lot of yeah. thoughts here, so I'm just going to go ahead and let him I start. Um, first of all, you talk about Diaz first, and then I'll go into Kevin Smith. But yeah, Uzel Diaz had a 476 OPS this season with four home runs. Ryan Ripken had a 456 OPS and almost the same number of at bats. Um, and Ryan Ripken swings a baseball bat like I would, like if I stepped into a major league batter's box drunk. Like that's just, <laughs> it's, ugh, it's, if Ryan Ripken has better numbers than you, like you retire, you quit. Baseball is not in your future. Uh, and Diaz is real close to that. Um, at least according to Rock Cabaco, Diaz is going to the Arizona Fall League. Those rosters haven't been officially announced yet, but. Like that's a trip to salvage his career, I think, in Baltimore. And we've had Eric Longenhagen on, who ha- didn't have a whole lot of positives to say about Diaz. Alex Fast had to dig deep to find something nice to say about Diaz. And John Mioli pretty much closed the door for me with his comments. Uh, no real excitement there. You know, the fact that he's not a Michael Elias guy. Um, maybe there's something to be said for that when all three great baseball minds all have the same opinions about this guy. Mike Elias has had some pretty I – mean, like, I know Elias isn't going to dog his players in, in the press, but Elias has had some pretty positive things to say in, in terms of of his ability. You know, there's been multiple uh, evaluators over, over time, third-party evaluators, who have looked at him and said, hey, there's a skill set there that works, but you got to produce – and when you have a sub 500 OPS season and a couple hundred at bats, uh, and this is coming off multiple injured years, eh, it's not going to be a whole lot of excitement, and everyone's going to be particularly down on you. But for me, again, you look at some of the deadwood that's still on the 40 man roster, clear that off. If you have to remove Diaz, okay. But if you can find a room to have him back, have him come back, put him at AAA, and you either produce. Or you don't. And uh, if he gets back on the radar, great. If he doesn't, you know, he had the opportunity. Uh, I would wonder if there's something else particularly going on on of him at, at that level of non-production, right? I mean, not not health or just mm, something else. But uh, it, it, I mean, that, that's yeah. a completely lost lost year. Uh, certainly, it's disappointing seeing you know him and Kremer every day. Uh, every fifth day with, with Kremer's results once he went back. And I guess there was a comment, again, back on the board today, and there was like, so would you, if Diaz had not been part of the Machado trade, would you just be automatically ready to keep him off the off the 40-man? For me, uh, if he had the exact same skill set and was not part of the Machado trade, this is still a guy that had success at a young age at the AA level. Uh, that you had multiple people in the industry excited about at one one point, still relatively young, what's he, 24, 5-ish, probably yeah. next year. So not overly young, but still young enough that if he went uh, went back and produced, I would give him that opportunity and not to go back too often to the Cedric Mullins uh, well, and not everyone's going to follow uh, that huge, you know, that crazy example. But sometimes you get written off, and sometimes you rebound, and sometimes you don't. Uh, you know, probably at this point, you you fully expect nothing out of Diaz. You expect him to, you, you never expect him to ascend. You expect him to flame out. But I would still give him the opportunity. But that's me. <laughs> yeah, we could. I don't know, Zach, if you have thoughts about Diaz, and then I can I can dive into Kevin Smith after. Yeah, I think pretty much you guys have touched on my thoughts with Diaz. You know, I think that there are. There's enough roster spots that you can clear this offseason that you can keep Diaz on there if you want to, but he has moved down the outfield depth chart for me in this system. Um, there's now to the point where I have several players 
in front of him um, and not just Kyle Stowers, but Robert Newstrom um, would be in front of him for me. I would put Zach Watson ahead of Eusebio Diaz right now, not in terms of who's going to reach the majors faster, but who just excites me more. Um, yeah, because, well, also yeah, McKenna struggling. and Nick, you were on that more uh, more than I was. McKenna certainly took advantage mm-hmm. of his uh, AAA time this year, and he got uh, some exposure in the in the bigs. Um, you know, uh, there's multiple guys that, that are directly ahead of them. There's nobody that you're going to be. They can't be excited about what they have right now. He, he is some 500 OPS. Sorry, let's go back, uh, Nick. What, what were your thoughts there on uh, on Smith? <laughs> Yeah, so Smith, I mean, I, I do hope Diaz can turn it around, but uh, we'll see what he does in Arizona. But Kevin Smith, I will preface my Kevin Smith thoughts by just saying that this was the Miguel Castro for Kevin Smith plus uh, a, a lottery ticket prospect. I can't remember off the top of my head who the, the other throw-in was there with that Kevin Smith deal. But I will make that trade 10 out of 10 times, trading a Miguel Castro-type reliever for a Kevin Smith-type prospect 10 out of 10 times because you're going to hit eventually. But and Kevin Smith still young as well. I think he's only the same age as Diaz, around that same age. Um, still potential there. I'm not closing the door at all on Kevin Smith, but he had a 6.23 ERA and a 7.05 FIP in AAA this year. 2.24 home runs per game. And yeah, he had 10.8 strikeouts per game, but he also had 7.8 walks per game. 19% of hitters he faced in AAA, he walked. The whip jumped the last three months of the year from 1.62 to 205 to 2.21 in September. Just in September alone, he walked 20 hitters, only struck out 17, and more than 50% of all of the pitches that he threw failed to reach the strike zone. I mean, that's I have not seen lack of control like that since, like, the only name I could think of was, like, for the diehards out there, you remember, like, Matias Dietz. Uh, I think he got cut last year. Like, that guy, I still remember, and actually it was Melanie Newman who was calling the Salem Red Sox at that time. Uh, and Dietz was warming up in the bullpen and like threw like two or three warm up pitches onto the field in the same half inning. I, her reaction was a uh, priceless and said it all. But um, that's the kind of control that like Kevin Smith was showing in September. It wasn't getting any better with those starts. And I, I know I can see why protecting Smith on the rule five, he's rule five eligible. I can see why protecting him would be an easy decision. I know Zach's made a lot of those points in the Patreon WhatsApp group, but you have to imagine that that's going to be a very tough decision. I think uh, this all season, that's a deep conversation that Elias and crew has because it was some contribute said in the comments. There's night and day double a, he looked unhittable, fantastic. And then triple a, it got worse and worse and worse from the moment he went up. And maybe that's part of the reason why, like letting a go, like letting a guy like Kenny Steenshire, the pitching coach in Norfolk go something that we've talked about a lot this season was how pitchers specifically getting the bump from, you know, low a to high a, high A to double A, et cetera, et cetera. All those guys, those adjustment windows were very small and they pitched very well after their promotions. We saw progression, but once these guys reached triple A, we stopped seeing that progression from these pitching prospects. Cal Bradish was a slight exception. So maybe a pitching coach change down there helps out an off season helps out. They got data on him now. We'll see what happens, but not a great year for Kevin Smith. You know, Nick, do you remember that horrible series in Memphis? I think it was in July. Where it seemed like at the end of the first inning, every game it was ten to nothing Redbirds. Yep. Um, Kevin Smith, that was his first really bad outing in Triple A. And whereas I felt like the other pitchers who pitched in that series eventually kind of turned a corner, Smith for whatever reason never got back on track after that outing. Part of what I question is, you know, did the stuff drop a little bit? Did he struggle as the year went on, just wear down? Um, and that explains the velo and the walks. Part of it too is what I question is. 
Norfolk didn't play that many teams this year. So Smith has multiple starts against Durham, who was probably one of the best, if not the best all-around team in minor league baseball this year. Multiple starts against Jacksonville, who seemed to always hit Norfolk's pitching around. And after a while, I have to think that those hitters just picked up on Smith and hit him hard. And I, I think that that is something of the problem. Now, as for the Rule 5, this is sort of the opposite of the Diaz problem because Smith is a Mike Elias guy. Does Mike Elias want to risk a little less than a year after making that trade of Smith getting picked up and for some flukish reason sticking in the bullpen next year and turning around? Um, or does he protect him and think whoever the pitching coach is at AAA next year um, has to figure out where, what went wrong and how to get him back on track? Because up until mid-July, Smith was one of the best pitchers in this farm system. That's not an exaggeration. It's just that he dropped off so much that we have to have this conversation. Yeah. I mean. Again, there's probably enough uh, Deadwood uh, that you can directly remove from the 40-man. I see uh, Bob actually had a post about that earlier today on the board. You know, uh, he mentions at least – I'm going through a list here. There's 15 guys that are easily removable. Uh, uh that, that you should you should be able to find room uh, 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 to have uh, Smith back. Yeah, and that's why I think it, it is he is protected because there is so much dead wood that you can chop off this roster and, and give him another year for sure. And that doesn't mean you know he has to be in the major leagues at all next year. He could spend all year in AAA next year as well. But it's just concerning that we add him to like the Zach Lowther and and you know the pile there at AAA who didn't really perform and who guys who we were kind of excited for. That's disappointing. But we all, at the same time, we've had so many success stories, especially when it comes to pitchers and the lower and mid levels of the minor leagues that, you know, it's for us to only be having such limited conversations about guys falling off as hard as Diaz and Smith did. I think that's a pot that's trying to look at this as positively as possible, but a rough, rough year for Kevin Smith. So I'm going to go back to a question that Vivek had earlier. Uh, on YouTube, can Norfolk ever get to Durham Bulls level? Now, Durham, as I mentioned a moment ago, probably the best all-around team in minor league baseball this year, had a lot of great prospects, including Wander Franco come through, and I believe finished with the best uh, record in AAA East this year. Um, I would say that if Norfolk is going to get to that level, it's probably next year, especially if the service time rules come back in some form and Rutzman and Rodriguez do start there. I'm curious here, but... Uh, you guys had to say about this. Uh, the rotation can be stacked. I mean, I mean, if you put uh if you figure one of the six guys that ascended to the majors this year that was back and forth in terms of uh, uh, if you factor him into the rotation, right, and then you the progression of Rodriguez in the AAA, if that happens, uh, and even if a couple of those guys wind up in the Orioles bullpen, it's still five, six, seven guys fighting for spots in the rotation that can be uh, pretty strong. And you start with that, uh, that that's a good, uh, good beginning. Yeah. And I mean, this roster, other broadcasts pointed out when they would play Norfolk that there was a lot of talent on that roster. It just wasn't performing. They weren't performing up to the expectations. You know, Tyler Nevin was kind of hit or miss. Yeah. He had power numbers, but you know, he really struggled to hit for a high average. Ryland Bannon, Eusebio Diaz had their tough seasons. There's a lot of talent on this Norfolk roster. It just didn't seem to all click this year for guys. And, and then the pitching 
did seem to be the major issue with these guys. Like I mentioned, the prospects not really progressing. And then I think Connor Wade was one of like the top innings guys in Norfolk's rotation. So, I mean, yeah, guys, teams like Durham, I mean, we know Tampa Bay situation. They're stacked. I, I don't know which league, minor league division, like Tampa's affiliates did not win the championship. I know Durham won the final stretch deal. Um, this year, the fi- best record over the final 10 games. I mean, that's, that's just not even a Durham issue. That's just Tampa Bay as an organization. Is just, They're just monsters. They're freaks. Uh, they know how to do it right. Um, they're my World Series pick, I think, this year as well, looking at the playoff bracket. But, um, yeah, I'm hesitant to say, like, Norfolk's going to be better next year because I'm a legitimate fan of the Norfolk Tides. Like, as weird as that is for anybody to say they're a fan of a minor league team, I grew up right next to the ballpark. All my summers spent at Harbor Park. I love the Tides, and I really thought this was the year, but it was frustrating to see some of those big names not really – produce this year uh, one of the things you guys have, uh, have mentioned uh, during the year and this was something i projected going into the year i thought elias was going to be more uh, apt to push guys along this year and that certainly happened uh within the, within the system and you start, saw guys uh move uh you know as they perform so how quick do guys like uh westberg do they go does he wind up starting back at Bowie, or does he get pushed up to uh triple a to begin the year and you could argue uh, either way, but uh, you know how fast they want to put those guys together. You know, push their best talent up. Uh, yeah, I, I, Elias was definitely more aggressive, uh, moving guys, and I think that's going to continue as we uh, get to this phase of the rebuild. Yeah, I don't think after this year you can say Mike Elias like slow, uh, slowly brings up his prospects. He was pretty aggressive with some guys. Jordan Westberg, first year pro ball, played in three levels, and now you are having this conversation of does he start next year in AAA, which I think he does. So a great like Vivek's comment there, great year for promotions. I think that's entirely accurate. Yeah, and going back to the Durham discussion, Simkin Tribute had a comment a minute ago, which is the Durham not stats more four A guys than prospects there. I, throughout the year, from what I could see from Dorm, it seemed like a steady balance, especially when you compare it to a team like Charlotte, which basically had a major league bench uh, in its starting lineup for a lot of the season early on. But yeah, I think that that's a good point because if you have the level of talent that Tampa Bay has at the major league level, you can stick four A guys in Dorm for most of the year. I mean, when Tampa Bay picked up Sean Armstrong, how many organizations would have just thrown Armstrong into the bullpen just because he's an arm? Tampa Bay, though, doesn't have to do that because Tampa Bay builds really good rosters year after year, and they've been doing it for a while now. So that does help your AAA team out, that you can you know, stash guys down there that on most teams would probably be in the majors. Sharon Armstrong might get a real series ring this year, guys. Just sorry to bring that up. We can move on. So um, Bob has weighed in here. Um, he is watching. And, uh, oh, hold on, wrong uh, comment. See, Bob, I'm not as good at this as you are. Uh, we need you back here quickly. Um, all right, here it is. This is Bob, and I'm late to this. But maybe <laughs> the answer starts with getting. Reverse Cedric Mullins. Uh, why not? Go out in Arizona and try it. Let's see. Go out, stay healthy, <laughs> do something. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. And now, as we always do in the final segment of On the Birds each week, oh, I do have one more question up here that I want to get back to just to go to Major League Talk. Uh, Addy weighs in. Could there be a reunion with Eduardo Rodriguez or Zach Davies this offseason? We talked about Rodriguez a little bit, but I wanted to get this up here uh, to get your guys' thoughts on Davies. Uh, The peripherals were horrible with the Cubs this year, but uh, he was also on a $3 million contract. So 
three million dollar contract this year with worse peripherals says he should be obtainable for uh for the Orioles and he's been a viable major league starter in, in his career and compared to anything the Orioles have uh, trotted out there uh, over the last uh four years then there are spots available you know I, I I'm not opposed to it Get me one guy I know I can definitively rely on next to means and another major league starter, and I would be pretty happy. You know, I'm still on the Rodriguez uh, would be, uh, uh, wagon, but there are a number of other guys, and Davies would be one of them. Yeah. Looking at Davies' page now, I mean, he was good in Milwaukee, and he was good with San Diego, and he was with Chicago this year and Chicago is kind of a dumpster fire as well. So like what impact did that have? Um, I mean, they dumped you Darvish for like peanuts. So, I mean, if he's, yeah, if it's less than $3 million that you're going to be able to bring in a Zach Davies type for this year, I'm on board hundred percent with that move. Yeah. I mean, I would be interested in bringing Davies back. Um, just cause you know, I think as Nick mentioned things with the Cubs this year were so unstable. He's shown before that he can pitch in parks that are tilted a little bit more towards hitters. So I'd be curious, especially sort oh, of the by Lois. He, he made eight point six three million. I got confused there, but still, he's not going to make. He shouldn't make more than that uh, this coming uh, coming year, based off of what what he experienced there with the Cubs. Uh, you know, a couple other guys, uh, Pineda, that's been kicked. You know, kicked around there. Um, uh, one guy we talked about is. The trade target was uh, Manea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if that's obtainable, I'd love to love to see that. A lot of K, uh, K's there. And that's one of the things with the increasing organizational depth and, again, the payroll flexibility. Hey, you should have the ability to go out and make a move like that. <laughs> so we'll move in now to the final segment where we do talk about that depth a little bit. We focus on guys outside the top 30 that stood out to us uh, this past season. This is probably going to be the last week we do this segment for a while. So Chris gets to join in here, and he's going to start off with his pick. Well, again, uh, you guys have just done such wonderful coverage with uh, On the Verge, but also with uh, articles at the site, uh, and you had your top 50 prospects in July, and uh, number 37 was uh, outfielder Michelle Dason. 19 years old, uh, and the quote there from the Orioles International Scouting Director, Kobe Perez, is viewing Deshaun as a potential five-star, or excuse me, five-tool player. And, uh, you know, he had a pretty big year uh, before moving up to Delmarva there at the end of the year. So it'll be interested to watch him as he goes to his first, uh, figures to have his first full season uh, play next year and see how quickly he uh progresses at that level if he's competitive at the you know low a over at age 19 20 yeah maybe you really have something so that'll be fun to watch yep i think i mentioned this when we talked about him a couple weeks ago he is so young i think he's going to be 19 all of next year too if i'm not mistaken uh he might be 20 he'll be under 21 for sure one of those ages uh he's going to be so young next year and we know the Orioles drafted all those college outfielders that's going to allow a guy like Deson to really stay in Delmarva probably for much of the year and let him just slowly work about his development uh but I'm gonna go with another outfielder and I stuck with AAA since they wrapped up on Sunday and we finished up the AAA season today um I'm just gonna throw out the name Zach Jarrett I want to mention his name one more time in case I never get an opportunity to um 
shout out to Zach Jarrett. Shout out to the AAA announcers for not have like feeding the urge to mention every single time he steps into a batter's box that he is Dale Jarrett's son. Because as he's come up through the system, that is what every announcer is like hung on to. Uh, but shout out to Jared. He played in 91 games for the Tides. The OPS was only 690, uh, but he did reach 10 home runs this year with Norfolk. Played a very good center field, and that's why I wanted to shout him out. Center field at Harbor Park is, is not easy to play. It's a massive park, but Jarrett was able to do it, uh, excelled defensively out there. And you know, there's a chance that he probably never gets an opportunity at the MLB level. But he's a good example, I think, of just how difficult this sport is and a reminder of just how good major leaguers are. And so I'm sure Jarrett wasn't thrilled with you know, his batting average or his own base percentage, but I think he can hang his hat on a, a successful 2021 season at AAA level. So I appreciated watching him play this year. Yeah, it was really, I think, good for him to go up to Norfolk and serve a pretty valuable role with the depth, especially because you had a guy like Ryan McKenna up and down so much. Diaz, we know, was often on the IL so much this year. So their North, their outfield wasn't quite what we thought it would be at the beginning of the year. So having Jarrett step up was key for them. My shout out this week goes all the way down to the Dominican Summer League, and it's Frederick Ben Cosme. Um, first off, if you want to see a really sweet left-handed swing, go look for his on social media. And I have to shout out him like guys in Samuel Basayo who share clips on Instagram of themselves because otherwise we would have no clue what was going on in Dominican Summer League other than stats. So shout out to them for posting video. But good left-handed stroke uh, and 142 at-bats put up an 816 OPS at age 18 in the Dominican Summer League this year while batting 310, 10 steals, two homers. Um, I don't know what the future holds for the infielder. He was a guy the Orioles signed in August of 2020, but a guy that certainly stepped up with good numbers this year. And then I'm looking forward to seeing the Florida Complex League next year. And uh, here's Bob weighing in, Junior Lara, with the uh, shout out this week. So Bob from the sidelines giving us a shout out here. So Chris, uh, thank you for coming in and, uh, and sitting for us this week, doing a great job as guest host. And we look forward to having you on as a guest sometime in the future. But in the meantime, uh, our listeners know a lot about Baltimore sports and life. But if you want to give a little bit of background on the site and what's up there now and why they should check it out, that would be great. Yeah, again, uh, thanks to you guys for having me on and the coverage you provided this year in another lost uh, year at the major league level. You made the minor leagues uh, more, more fun for everybody. Uh, it's great to see the uh, uh, that you really captured the attention of a lot of fans. That was great. Uh, really, uh, uh, kudos to you for the uh, what the work you guys put in. Baltimore Sports and Life, um, we've had – it's been a development over time. You can come check out the site. We cover Orioles, Ravens, Terps. We've got about 30 writers. Uh, half of them were like me. They were working in an office. It was a cathartic diversion. The other half were working for national outlets, and were uh, uh, and they're contributing to us in multiple uh, sports. But Orioles, Ravens, Terps, but also MLB, NFL, college football, soccer, college basketball, NBA, uh, even uh, high school sports at this point. We got a little bit of everything, and our board is active. So if you enjoy talking about the uh, Orioles and the minor leagues, come and uh, join the discussions at the uh, board. Uh, but thanks again to you guys. Uh, very fun. Bob, hope you're feeling better, and uh, uh, we'll see you on the board. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, just a programming note, we will be on Tuesday next week, a special time, so you don't have to worry about trying to squeeze us into your pregame plans 
for Monday Night Football between the Ravens and the team that used to be in Baltimore. Um, in the meantime, continue to follow us on Twitter at BSL on the Verge. Check out Baltimore Sports and Life for all the latest Orioles, Ravens, Terps coverage, high school sports, as Chris mentioned, and more. I actually just have a piece that went up Monday night looking at Gunnar Henderson's 2021 season, so be sure to check that out. Um, for Nick Stevens and for Chris Stoner and Bob Phelan, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to On the Verge.